Welcome to our Wilmot Dixon podcast series, Building Knowledge, Shaping the Future of Construction. I'm Louise Roden, a Communications Manager at Wilmot Dixon, and in this episode, we're bringing you Andrew Galdard, Wilmot Dixon's Chief Communications Officer, who is speaking to Jonathan Porritt, co-founder of Form for the Future, Julia Barrett, Chief Sustainability Officer, and Tim Carey, Chief Product Director of Collider, about how we can meet the challenges of a net zero economy. COP26 is shining a spotlight on climate change and the decisive action needed to prevent lasting damage being caused to our planet. For the first time, the conference will address carbon emissions from buildings on a special day dedicated especially to the built environment. With so much at stake, we're all expected to play our part in achieving this net zero economy. So now I'll hand over to Andrew. COP26 is less than a month away. Um, and for me and for everyone, this summer's Code Red UN report, um, mm-hmm. I think has made it even more critical. Um, it's clear that um, the whole climate change situation is going to start affecting our lives, not just those of future generations. So quite a, an interesting sort of um, turning point, I think, for, for our, our, our world. Jonathan, I think start off with a very simple question. Um, what actually is COP26 and, and, and how has it come about? <laughs> yes, it's a good question, Andy, um, because you really do sometimes wonder why we're pinning such faith in one big conference bringing together a whole bunch of uh, world leaders to discuss something which has in fact been on their agenda since the Earth Summit in 1992, when the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was first brought into being. And pretty much every signatory to that convention have then been supporting this annual conference process. So we're now COP26, the 26th time that signatories to the UN Framework Convention have met together to try and work out what the hell we should be doing to restrict emissions of these greenhouse gases and to ensure that we restrict average temperature increase for the rest of this century. So they are a really big deal. There's a lot, of course, that goes on behind the scenes. But nonetheless, this one, this particular COP, is as important as any that we've had, certainly since the Paris conference in 2015. Yeah. And interesting enough, the most recent uh, COP was in 2019. Um, Do you think the world's changed a lot since that in the space of two years, obviously with COVID and things? There's no doubt. I mean, for me... The way people are talking about the, this COP and this moment in climate diplomacy, there's a completely different feel to it. I mean, just since 2019, the sheer intensity of climate shocks, so all the disasters that we've heard about all around the world, have really impacted on more and more people. And not only that, I mean, the scientific advice now, you referred, Andy, in your introduction to this uh, report that came out just a few weeks ago from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's slightly different from the Framework Convention, but the IPCC was set up in 1988 to advise governments on the science of climate change. And they brought out their latest assessment report just a few weeks ago. And that's the thing that was referred to by Antonio Guterres as code red for humanity, as in imagine red lights flashing at you all over the place. We may be close to the point where it becomes too late to do what we need to do to restrict runaway climate change. So there's, in comparison to 2019, because we obviously missed the conference in 2020, it feels completely different. 
mm. mean, it really does. And one of the biggest things, and we may want to come on and talk about this, is that the business community in those intervening years have really stepped up. There's a hell of a presence now from big business in terms of trying to encourage politicians to do more. And civil society, of course, through all sorts of different uh, expressions, schools, rebellion. We've seen a big shift in civil society as well. Yeah, no, you're right. You're actually on the science because it seems now that everything is pointing towards systematic change. I know that Al Gore um, did a really good film probably about 15, 20 years ago, which painted towards it. But it seems now that all the science is coalescing around the fact that unless something really tangible happens, this is something that's going to be almost irreversible very soon. Yeah, I mean, none of it's that mysterious, to be honest. I mean, we've known since the end of the 18th century that if you burn fossil fuels, you put CO2 into the atmosphere. The more CO2 you put into the atmosphere, the greater the warming effect. And that is cumulative. So we've had a 1.1 degree average centigrade rise since the start of the Industrial Revolution. So everything we're seeing in the world today, all the droughts, the floods, the storms, literally everything, has come about as a consequence of a slightly more than a one degree centigrade uh, average temperature increase. And we're now looking at the inevitability of 1.5, probably by the middle of the century, and the very, very scary prospect that we could actually see an average temperature increase of up to three degrees centigrade by the end of <laughs> the century. And that's what is focusing the minds of everybody, because it's pretty damn scary to see what happens with a 1.1 degree centigrade rise. If we look at a two or a three degree centigrade rise, you can begin to see why the politicians now are long last succeeding in persuading mm. the politicians just how urgent this is. Yeah. And I suppose, um, do you think, or are you hoping that COP26 can actually be a turning point in, in this process? I don't know. To be honest, the signals are not are not brilliant. I mean, I'd love to give a truly upbeat kind of message to to colleagues on this call, but it's it's not it's not overwhelmingly encouraging what's happening at the moment. The current calculation from the UN itself, so from the Secretariat to the Framework Convention, is that we're currently on track for a 14 or 15 percent increase in emissions by 2030. If you look at all the commitments made by governments, that's where more of this geeky language comes in, the nationally determined contributions from governments. If you kind of look at all of that and you put them all together, we're still looking at the likelihood of a 14 percent increase, whereas the science tells us we have to halve emissions by 2030. So in that contrast between a 14% increase and a near 50% decrease by 2030, you can see why people are, mm. are not brimful of confidence that we're going to do what we need to do. Some things will definitely happen. I think we will crack the financing story, which is really important for other countries. They are absolutely determined that the proper financing up to $100 billion a year will help poorer countries, developing emerging countries, cope with their uh, climate reality. Hopefully we'll get final agreement on what is known as the Paris rule book. So the Paris agreement came into force in 2015, but they haven't managed to sort out the bloody rule book in the intervening six years. So although it's still very techie stuff, very geeky, everybody's 
everybody's reasonably hopeful that there'll be an agreement on on implementing the Paris Agreement. And then the big, big story is, are countries going to increase their ambition level during COP itself so that we get closer to this hope that we can see, we can stabilize the, the climate in such a way that we don't exceed 1.5 degrees centigrade by the end mm -hmm. of the century. That's where people's hopes lie. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put too much hope, frankly, on us getting getting within that 1.5 degrees centigrade. I think we will see commitments yeah. that would give us a reasonable expectation of say, staying below two degrees centigrade. I don't know whether that cheers anybody up, but um, it'll certainly be badged by Boris and everybody else as, yeah. as a massive triumph. But it's only after COP that the real experts will kick in and say, well, yes, massive triumph may be, but look at the reality. Yeah, and I suppose also geopolitics. Um, we need companies like China and also India that do obviously emit carbon to fall into line, really, don't we? I mean, that's that's another issue for us. How do we make sure that we get world consensus? Yeah, there's a huge amount of concern about China. No, no rock solid guarantee even that the uh, Chinese are going to send the kind of high level delegation that is hoped for. Joe Biden from the USA has committed to come, but China's not made an equivalent commitment. Uh, Modi from India will almost certainly come, but that's in the balance. These are critical players, obviously, in the whole geopolitical story. And the negotiations going on between these countries at the moment are a bit fraught, as you've probably seen. There's something of a standoff between the US and China on tons of different things at the moment, particularly security issues in the South China Sea and um, mm. what China sees as its backyard. So again, that side of it is complicated, but don't rule out China's possible leadership here. It's not that they're in any way ignorant or detached from the science of climate change. They know that China stands to lose as much, if not more, from the impacts of climate change. So they're, they're definitely there. But of course, their dependence on coal is still huge and phasing out their coal-fired power stations over the course of the next 20 years. I tell you that, whatever you might say about China, that is one hell of a tricky transition to pull off. Yeah, I suppose one, one last, before I sort of switch to talking about our own influence in this, the climate change agenda, if you look at the next 14 days when COP happens and all the things that are going to be talked about it, for you, when it finishes, what would you see as progress? What things would happen that you think, well, that's that's been really positive that's come out of COP? For me, the, the benefit of this COP process isn't necessarily in the event itself. It's actually in this sort of period of time when people shape their views and ideas. And, you know, I think everybody on a call like this, I, I mean, we have to recognise that awareness about this conference, because that's all it is at one level. It's just another conference, okay. But awareness of the importance of this conference is far, far greater for this conference than it's ever been before. And you've got far more businesses committed. You've got far more local government leaders committed to this, much more explicit statements of the intention to get really connected to this agenda. You've got civil society lining up behind the need for big change. So for me, probably all of that already amounts to a, a real transformation in attitudes about uh, climate. Whether COP26 then 
delivers on all of that with the actual <laughs> agreement itself, we've still to see. Mm. Yeah, you, you make a good point. I suppose it's about public awareness and public consciousness. So it's almost like, well, what am I doing and what are you doing? So you ask the government or you ask your local authority, what are you actually doing to be to play your part to actually deliver meaningful change in, in terms of tackling climate change? And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Public consciousness and, and the awareness now is so high compared to where it was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, because obviously yeah. people, it's, it's, it's real, it's going to impact them personally. Yeah, no, it, it, consciousness is much higher. And I mean, you know, Boris will be delivering another of his broadsides um, at the party conference today, and we'll get another burst of sort of incredibly inflated rhetoric about what leadership looks like for the UK government. I mean, I tell you, if um, if the... Yeah. If I look, if I look at the rhetorical foreplay, as I call it, so all these politicians talking up how important it is, I mean, if, if that's anything to go by, then the COP climax is going to be something to behold. But the truth of it is that these, this rhetoric doesn't really amount to very much. The UK is absolutely the world leader in setting ambitious targets. I tell you, there's no other country in the world that is as good as us in doing this. But if you actually look at the deliverables, that affect us in particular in the built environment sector, you will know just how patchy that really is. And it's for me, it's still utterly unbelievable that we're still waiting, for instance, for a heat and building strategy. 14% of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions, 14, 15%, come from the way we heat and provide energy for our homes, for our buildings. 14%, it's a huge, great whack. Carbon footprint, and this strategy has been promised. Now, I heard I read something the other day that said that we're now at the fifth moment at which the strategy is going to be has been promised. So, if you go back five promises, that was the point where the government said it was going to put out this strategy, and now we're what three weeks away from COP, and maybe we'll get the strategy landed the day before the whole thing starts. You know, for me, this is. This is disgraceful, and actually it does affect every single person on this call because the context in which decisions need to be taken is very, very unclear. It's so hard for people without having that kind of clarity at the national level. It's, it's a good point, actually. I mean, um, the first time ever at a COP conference, um, they, have, they have a day focused on the built environment, which is on the 11th of November. Yeah. And, and just just recently, um, a director at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development described built environment emissions as the sleeping giant. You know, he said nobody really pays a lot of attention to the full impact of emissions uh, from buildings. And, and I guess that's about a change for, for us all, isn't it, Jonathan? It's huge. And obviously, it depends how you how you deconstruct the figures, but because energy consumption can be measured in terms of the point where the energy is generated or the point where the energy is used. But if you just look at it from our point of view, the, the built environment, all of the buildings and infrastructure required to make life work for people, that amounts to 40% of global emissions. So it is an absolutely huge chunk of the total carbon footprint with huge potential for really very dramatic and rapid reduction in those emissions from buildings. So it's not that we should panic at the scale of that. Actually, it's the scale of it that ought to give us heart. 
because we do increasingly know what we need to do. The difficulty is we're not good in this country at doing it in the right kind of way. So many people on this call, for instance, will know how critical the National Audit Office has been and the Environmental Audit Committee has been of the inability of government to connect with local government leaders, specifically to drive this zero carbon built environment agenda, whether we're talking about new build or retrofit. And the level of proper engagement, real discussion with the lo with local authority leaders has just been so poor. And it's really good now that the government is coming under much more critical scrutiny on that. The National Audit Office's report is incredibly, incredibly direct. It just said, you can't deliver this stuff if you're not prepared to find a new set of relationships with local government, particularly with the metro mayors, with the big cities and towns, as we know. But these are big targets you've put in place, and the only way you're going to get close to delivering them is if you develop a much more strategic set of high-level relationships with local government in the UK. Yeah, I did see recently that over 30 mayors and local authority leaders um, have actually signed or co-signed a letter to the government calling for a devolution of funding and powers to achieve net zero. I mean, is that practical? Is that a way forward? <laughs> I, I haven't listened to it in detail, but if, my, if the accounts of Rishi Sunak's speech are correct, he didn't actually mention the climate crisis and certainly didn't mention anything about a a recalibration of the funding streams but think about it look we we all know that an absolutely critical priority here is retrofitting existing housing stock in this country we absolutely know that we don't need insulate britain gluing themselves to motorways to remind people on this call just how strategically significant this is but we also know through very painful past experience that to get this right, you've got to build a multi-year program allowing local authorities to work with the private sector to develop the supply chains on which effective delivery of retrofit programs depend. We honestly, we all know this. So everybody is thinking, well, when are we going to get that commitment to a multi-year program for a retrofit strategy of that kind? And yes, it'll cost money, but the Conservative government, the Conservative Party put a nine billion pound pledge in its election manifesto in 2019 to help deal with this country's very poor housing stock. So I'm really pleased to see the way local government leaders are stepping up now and they're saying we want to make a contribution. We know we know how big a contribution we can make, but you've got to find a more effective way of bringing us into that delivery story. Mm. It's interesting, actually, you mentioned leadership and obviously leaders, investors, developers, local authorities, contractors, architects, you know, how can we actually be joined up and having a common approach? Because um, for me, that sometimes it can be very isolated. Yeah, well, I'm going to be interested to hear from colleagues on this call about ambition and how high the bar should be set. I mean, you know, in Wilmot Dixon, we have made a decision to set the bar high for ourselves we'd honestly because of the reality of the science and where we are at the moment we don't we don't think there's any other way of addressing this but of course in the sector as a whole there's, there's still quite a lot of nervousness about just how ambitious we should be people talk about the 
the sort of risks associated with some of this zero carbon built environment um, rollout. And there's a there's a pretty sharp debate about that. Now, for me, it's very, very clear. I, I don't believe there is there are risks associated, for instance, with Passive House. I mean, 10 years ago, Passive House was a highly risky proposition in the UK because there wasn't much of it going on. There wasn't much experience and nobody quite knew what it would look like on the ground. Right now, to talk about Passive House as a high risk route to high quality, near zero carbon housing is ridiculous. There's no risk associated with it at all. What the risk lies in the fact we don't have enough experience in making it work as a tried and tested set of building techniques, construction techniques and procurement strategies and so on. So it's not high risk in itself, but the risk lies in the fact we are not doing enough of this to change the expectations of people around the quality of new housing. So I, for me, there's a big issue now about what do people see as risk and how, how much are they prepared to get out there and actually make these uh, new technologies, new techniques really deliver for people. Um, particularly, I think this applies at local government level where the ask is enormous, both in terms of the affordable social housing challenge, in terms of the retrofit story, uh, meeting new demand. This is a this is a really big thing, Andy, as we know, and mm. hence, hence this call, of course. It, it does take a lot of, I guess, political um, energy and um, to actually make that decision to go out there and say, actually, we're going to procure passive house and we're going to do it this way, and do it that way. That's that, that may be, you know, seen as, as risky potentially, but who's out there that can actually make those big calls to actually drive the market? Because once you get more and more local authorities or developers, contractors embracing, running with it, learning it, doing it, that's almost going to create a grand swell of opportunity that others are going to be able to fall behind. Yeah. <laughs> Look, realistically speaking, if this was done via regulation, so the government just said, okay, here's the deal. This is what we have to achieve in terms of all new build. And this is what we need to achieve now in terms of retrofit. And we're going to regulate for that through planning regs, um, everything else. Then it would be a damn sight easier for everybody to get on and make it happen. And of course, we had that regulation through the Code for Sustainable Homes, which many of you will have nostalgic thoughts about, I hope you will remember that we actually had a, a, a stepped route to zero carbon housing. And then there was going to be a follow-up strategy for non-domestic buildings in the UK. We had a perfectly good regulated strategic route to a zero carbon built environment here in the UK, all summarily swept aside for all sorts of, in my opinion, highly dodgy reasons um, in 2000 start in 2010 then completely swept aside in 2015 uh, notionally at the behest of the volume house builders um, so we know we know how complicated it is now because we don't have that clarity about the step changes needed to get to net zero which puts more onus on planning committees at the local level makes it harder to achieve some of the scale that we need because procurement becomes more costly you know if we were all procuring the materials that we need to do all new buildings 
at net zero, so whether passive house or not, you know the supply chains would look different. Costs would come down, economies of scale would kick in. But because we haven't done that, for people who've got very, very tight budgets, I mean, punitively tight budgets, it's harder to ramp up the capex up front, even if you know that the operational expenditures from that point on is going to be significantly lower. It's it's a tough call in local government to get that right. Yeah, thanks. Um, at this point, I'd like to bring in our Chief Sustainability Officer, Julia Barrett, actually, because you raised some really interesting points there. And obviously, Julia, from our side, is obviously dealing with many of those points on the ground. Um, Julia is responsible for our now and ever strategy, which is to be a a zero carbon business for offsetting by 2030 and also to deliver buildings that from that day that also are zero carbon. I suppose um, looking at our own commitments about being zero carbon and, and how we, we become that, um, which, we, which we think are actually quite exacting. Is, it, is this going to be possible, Julia, and, and how are we going to go about doing it? Thanks, Andy. Uh, hello, Jonathan. Um, well, let's start at the beginning. Um, our targets have been approved by the science-based target initiative the, the international body and are aligned to that tough trajectory of one and a half degrees that that jonathan uh, has mentioned and as you say um, we've set ourselves i think a challenge well it is a challenge beyond what you see our competitors talking about they're all talking about being net zero by 2025 2030 2050 we've been net zero in our own operations since 2012 it's not hard you can do it if you're committed to doing it we want to go that extra mile by 2030 be zero carbon in our own operations without offsetting the other really important thing about our strategy is that it goes beyond that um you, you'll scope one and two our own footprint our own operations which you'll have picked up by repeated twice and actually goes further and, and considers our supply chain emissions the embodied carbon and the materials we use and the in-use performance of our products, the buildings that we create for our customers. So it's all encompassing. We've also now, and those of you who know Jonathan will know he wouldn't have allowed us to sign up to a strategy like this without doing this. And indeed our board who are, are very committed, they wanted to be clear that we were setting something that we were confident we could achieve. So we've mapped our journey from when we started in 2020 through to 2030, and we've got actions and milestones for every part of our business. And as we're going through that journey, we're regularly reviewing our performance and, and uh, our progress. And already we know that it's not going to be a straight line trajectory and some of the things are going to be easier than others. But what gives me such um, confidence is that now or never which we launched just over a year ago has created a level of excitement and pride and individual ownership in our people like no other strategy before we've just done our all people uh, staff survey and 95 percent of our people said they know why this is a business priority for us it's core to our purpose, it helps us win work, it drives efficiency, it increases resilience, and it stimulates innovation. So it's a very long way, Andy, of saying, yes, mm. I do believe that the targets we've set are possible to deliver. And 
I believe we will be a stronger business for it. Yeah. And obviously, it's going to involve a lot of re-engineering, reinventing uh, alongside the cultural shift of our people and, and working with our supply chain, our customers too. Um, do we have any particularly exciting or, or interesting things that we're going to be doing that are, are, is going to involve reinventing and re-engineering what we do to ensure we can actually achieve our aspirations? Well, they do say, don't they, that the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So, of course, we've got to to change and, and reinvent and rethink what we do. And, you know, we've learned a lot over the last 10 years since um, we started on this journey. We've, you know, we've doubled our turnover, but we don't spend any more on fuel. We, you know, we've actually slashed our carbon emissions by over half. And in doing that, actually, we haven't employed lots of high tech innovation. What we've done is we've got started. We've understood where the problem areas are and the quick wins, and we've tackled them systematically and we've embedded the learning and then we've moved on to the next area. And then now looking forward. I might be controversial, but actually, I think all the solutions we need to get us to 2030 already exist whether that's spending more time um, in the virtual world with our building modelling, there are low carbon materials out there that will get us a long way on the journey, building management optimization, pre-manufactured solutions, off-site manufacturing, on-site renewables, off-site renewables. But for those of us that have been in doing this for a long time, it's not the tech and it's not the innovation that's the hard bit. The hardest thing, I think, is getting everyone in that delivery chain from the customers, like people on this call, to us and our people, through to our supply chain partners, to change their behaviour and change the conversations. So, for instance, to stop talking about capital cost and to talk about whole life value, notwithstanding that the, the um, issues and the problems um, that, that Jonathan just highlighted in terms of tough funding streams and, and how you bring them together. The other one is to change from what's wrong or what we can't do to what we can do and how far can we go with what we've got now. So we do have to change, but a lot of that's in us mm. and we can get on with it now whilst we wait for some of those bigger innovations that are going to take us beyond where we, we've set our challenges for. Well, also, I mean, one of the big issues that we face um, is, is body carbon, you know, and everyone talks about it, and body carbon, what are we doing about it? What is industry doing about it? What can customers themselves, how they can influence the process? Because body carbon remains a huge issue. We can have a great performance, but then the carbon that's created and, and, and the impacts on, on, on the climate because of that in, in, in the materials and the supply chain. I mean, what, what are we doing and what do we think more needs to be done vis-a-vis -vis the, the supply chain and, and, and embodied carbon? Sure. So embodied carbon, by the time we you know deliver a, a project for our customers, that's all the materials that go into that building but also all the energy that our supply chain partners and ourselves have emitted to create that building. And from the work we've done over the last few years, we know that that operational footprint that I was talking about at the beginning is less than 1% of the ripples that we create being a, a tier one contractor. 
So this is by far our biggest challenge, embodied carbon, and we really need to crack on now if we're going to uh, hit the targets that we've set ourselves by 2040. Now, one of the great things about my job is that I get to collaborate with my opposite numbers in our competitors. And, you know, we realise that our supply chain and the materials that we're using are the same materials and supply chain partners that they're using. So we all, we've been collaborating for a while. You know, back in 2012, we launched the Supply Chain Sustainability School that provides free uh, training and insight to thousands of supply chain partners. And in fact, anybody, even the people on here today, can log on and use that fabulous resource. Last year, we collaborated to launch Contractors Declare. And then only last month, we, we collaborated again with the school and the likes of Skanska and Morgan Sindel to launch a portal where our supply chain partners can uh, upload their bills and see what their carbon footprint is. Because only 11% of SMEs know what their carbon emissions are. That actually means they don't understand how much they're spending on fuel and the importance or the, the opportunity, should I say, of reducing that. So this is really important in terms of uh, you know, profitability of our supply chain partners. But also important to realise that as early as 2035, this issue of embodied carbon, as you say, is going to overtake operational carbon as the big issue as we decarbonise the grid and, and, and uh, employ renewables. So we're already working with our suppliers to uh, provide us with their footprints of their products. And again, back to that boring old approach that I you know, said up front, it'll help us identify where can we make the quick wins? Where's the 80-20? But also, where are the pinch points? Where are those really difficult aspects where we will need to seek innovation? Like things like green steel, which we've just seen the first green steel produced in the world, and green concrete. They're going to take longer, but if we signal now that there's going to be a demand, the manufacturers will make the business case to invest. Um, so again, that's another partnership we need to be aware of. Yeah, I suppose also in terms of procurement, um, we could, customers could be saying as part of their procurement policy, you know, what are you, how are you tackling embodied carbon? Because I can see that becoming much more important in procurement decisions of the future. How are suppliers dealing with the embodied carbon situation? What are you doing? How can you prove that you know the embodied carbon and you're actively trying to reduce embodied carbon? in the materials and the processes which are being used to build out that big leisure centre or that, that sort of mixed use development in the town centre. And that, that, I can see that become more and more important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it would be great if more customers are demanding that of us and our competitors. You know, if they, they, they understood that and um, worked with us. And I suppose, you know, over the last uh, year, you know, we've started to see more and more of those conversations, more of those conversations about um, how we can support sustainability. You know, we've got a lot of customers have, have declared climate emergencies um, or, or, or plans or even, you know, we've had some real road to Damascus um, changes. You know, we had a competitor when we started working with them just wanted the building, weren't really interested in the uh, sustainability agenda. And a year later, they were giving us a call saying, how do we make this front and centre of our reputation? How do we um, develop a, a low carbon policy? How do we make all of our future buildings low embodied carbon? 
So, you know, the, the people are really starting to get it. So I'd look really look forward to having more of those conversations mm -hmm. and having more of them early doors with our customers, even before actually you've probably thought about the building you want to build. You know, what's what's your overall strategy? What's the approach? You know, people who know me will know I love nothing more than a good chat. So, oh. you know, would love to do more of that. Just, just one last question, actually, and it does apply to, to all uh, building procurers. Um, how do we deal with the performance and use issue? Because for me, that's been a bugbear for a long time that um, often buildings just don't match up to what's been promised in terms of how they how they operate post completion. Yeah, it's a, it, you know, it's it's a fact that 40% of global emissions come from the built environment and you can almost double that when you take into account the energy for heating and cooling and hot water. Um, and, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. The SIBSI studies have shown that the gap between design and as-built performance can be upward of 200%. That's a phenomenal uh, waste of energy. Now, you know, the performance gaps, the VW scandal of our sector. Mm. It's the elephant in the room that rarely gets talked about. And frankly, you know, I've had some really weird looks when I'm in the room with, with competitors and others. When I raise it, they think I'm mad. But, you know, times are changing. Initiatives like the Be Seen guidance under the London 2021 plan actually requires developers to monitor and report on the actual operational performance for at least five years. Personally, I think this needs to become the norm, not the exception. Now, we've got approaches, you know, we've got our energy synergy approach for non-residential buildings and we're developing our approach for Resi 2. But the thing about the performance gap is it's important to accept that it's not about getting it wrong, more that we optimise based on the building, how it's actually been built, how it's actually been used, and we do that hand in hand with the customer. And we've already seen some brilliant results and massive cost savings and some really interesting insights that were about other aspects of how the building was set up and the kit that was put in it that was nothing to do with the construction. But without that insight, um, the customer would have been paying, you know, in that case, over £40,000 a year extra in bills. Mm. So I do hope the performance gap gets increasing visibility in the short term so that we sort it out once and for all. Mm. So that in the medium and long term, we don't actually have to talk about it anymore. Thank you. Thank you, Judith. Can I just remind everyone, if you have a question, uh, raise your hand or, or, or put it in, in the chat stream and I'll make sure that Jonathan answers it. But um, just very quickly, I've had a couple of um, questions asked beforehand. Um, one question from, from Paul Dockerell. Um, Jonathan, um, he wants your thoughts on how we can all collaborate to support changing attitudes and cultures in organisations that will enable the changes we need to make. Um, I don't know if that's... Yeah, no, I think that's, um, that's really key to this. And actually, Julia referred to this with, the, with our Now and Never strategy. One of the um the consequence of that is just the enthusiasm inside the organization for this now uh, admittedly Wilmot Dixon has been on the sustainability curve for a long time and we do a lot of work around social value as colleagues will know and in particular we have upwards of 80 percent of our staff who take part in social value initiatives with our clients in different parts of the country. But this is something you'll find across all sectors, not just our sector, 
one of the absolute go-to results of corporate sustainability is companies that get good at this find significant um, uplift in staff morale, engagement, a readiness to take part in whatever it is that's going on. So for me, this the question you've just raised there, Paul, about organizational culture is a really critical one because all the leaders in this field <laughs> have demonstrated that they're only leaders because they've succeeded in getting their own people fully engaged in what's going on here. And I think also um, what we find when we do our annual um, uh, training recruitments and, and um, one, of the, one of the reasons why we get about three, 4,000 applicants a year is because they like our approach to sustainability and, 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 our, and our purpose to make a meaningful impact on, on tackling climate change. And I think that that's a key differentiator, but also a key value that all organisations, I think, should have, just as you say, from an ability to attract and retain people and to really give people that, that sense of purpose that they work for an organisation is making a difference. And I think, that's, that's, as you say, that's a really important sort of uh, point that should galvanise all, all our organisations, really, to sort of grasp and, and permeate that, put that point through the company, actually, and the businesses. Um, actually, one other question I've had from um, Mike Townsend, uh, again to you, Jonathan. Jonathan, to what extent do you think the circular economy can contribute towards our climate and other sustainability targets? And how can we maximise this opportunity within the construction sector? Yeah, thanks, Mike. The, um, this whole question of the circular economy has become much more visible over the last um, five or six years. Very simple idea, but instead of having an economy that is based on uh, extracting materials, making stuff and then chucking stuff away, in landfill or wherever it might be, what we seek to do is to maximize the percentage of raw materials embodied in products and repurpose them, recycle them, turn them back into valuable materials. So you keep the value in the, in the economy. And it's grown and grown and grown as a, a, an area of concern. And I guess it's plastics, which is the place where so many people have now focused on the circular economy, which is the need to stop simply allowing not just single use, but but uh, multi-use plastics to escape into the environment, whether that's the terrestrial environment or the marine environment. And as we get better at this, and we are getting better at the notion of capturing value through, through reuse, recycling and repurposing, as we get better, we simultaneously reduce our carbon footprint because every single time you avoid that final moment of disposal, you are able to put back into the economy valuable materials that reduce the carbon intensity of the production process. So it's a very complementary idea. It's a big idea. Companies, if I'm being honest, companies find it quite difficult to um, turn into practical uh, impact. If, if we look around the place, going after low carbon, zero carbon now is definitely something that companies are on and get it. Circular economy type measures proving a little bit harder to demonstrate what the real value of that looks mm -hmm. Do you think there's been a lot of talk recently about hydrogen uh, as a future energy source? Do you think that that's the way forward? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, <laughs> well, I, 
again, there'll be many people on this call who've been through all sorts of um, moments of enthusiasm for hydrogen over the last 10, 20, 30 years. It comes and it goes. But this time, this is the big, big challenge and opportunity now to get the hydrogen story right. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to do justice to that question properly in the short amount of time we have, but there are two things I just need to say quickly. Firstly, hydrogen is an extremely carbon intensive material. I mean, to make hydrogen, you have to use natural gas and the carbon footprint of today's hydrogen production process is about 930 million tons of CO2. So hydrogen is a really dirty fuel. You never hear anybody in the hydrogen industry say that, but it's a really dirty fuel. So what we're talking about is green hydrogen. It's hydrogen that is not made with natural gas, but is made using renewable electricity to power up electrolysis machines that then produce the green hydrogen. The difficulty is you need a lot of energy to produce not much green hydrogen. So there's a lot of hype going on here in our world, and particularly those people who are hyping up the idea that you can put green hydrogen into our heating grids, into our gas grids, instead of the gas that we currently burn, which would certainly have a much lower carbon footprint. But the idea that we've got a straight substitution strategy, hydrogen for gas, is fantastical, to say the least, and dishonest at worst. So we shouldn't really be thinking in those terms. We do need now to be very, very clear about the way we're going to heat our homes. We've got to move away from gas. There'll be some limited substitution of hydrogen. But essentially, we need the government now to fess up, get it right, ban the idea of gas boilers from 2025 onwards. And I'm not saying that as a kind of radical outsider. CBI said that if the government wants to get this heating story right, it needs to ban the sale of gas-fired boilers from 2025 onwards. And that way we'll set a signal, we'll begin to see the rollout of heat pumps um, in uh, the scale that we now need. And essentially we'll move towards electricity as the basis for the heat economy in the UK. Yeah, thanks. Just, I, I know we've, we've mentioned uh, Passive House and I've got Tim Carey on the call and uh, Tim sort of runs our, our sort of Passive House um, collider business. And uh, I just wanted to, um, to ask Tim if he's there, um, just a little bit about uh, how can we make sure, how can we bring Passive House from being what remains a very niche um, technology to being something more mainstream that we can do on, on a wide scale basis? And should customers feel any risk about using Passive House as a technology in, in, in order to procure homes, leisure centres, all sorts of property? Yeah, hi Andy. Hi Tim. Yeah, yeah, hi, thanks for that. Um, yeah, to try and unpack that one bit at a time, uh, we've essentially set up Collider within Wilmot Dixon to uh, to drive better performing buildings that we deliver more efficiently. And in many ways, that, that, that echoes back to the, the point that Jonathan made about setting the bar higher and really demanding more of ourselves and our industry. And, and in many ways, so, so we've got a few characteristics of anything that we produce in Collider. One of those being that our buildings are net zero carbon in operation and picking up an earlier point that we're also 20%, at least 20% lower in terms of embodied carbon against relevant benchmarks. So for example, in residential, that would be the Letty benchmark. And when we set off on our journey to achieve net zero carbon, 
quite frankly, going back to values, we didn't want to fudge it. We wanted to do it with integrity. And I think that was one of the reasons why we were drawn to the Passive House standard, not just because it had been around for 30 years and whilst, uh, you know, arguably needs to be done at greater scale than it has done, but is a tried and tested methodology for delivering better quality buildings uh, and, and products. And again, picking up a point Julia made, when we look at things like the performance gap, if we look at all the data for, for as an example, residential buildings that have been delivered using uh, you know, against building regulations using SAP as an assessment method, we can see an enormous divergence between planned energy use and actual operational use. So real big performance gap. When we look at Passive House, we don't just see a lower predicted energy, much lower predicted energy performance, but we also see that they actually do what they say on the tin. And they actually deliver those levels of performance standard that, um, that they're predicted and modelled to do. Now, the reason that they achieve this is through high fabric performance. So not just in terms of the actual thermal performance of the various elements as also, but in also as well, a much tighter air tightness box, which doesn't just give you benefits from an energy point of view, but it also gives a much better environment for people that work or live in those types of buildings in terms of air quality. So really, it, I think passive house should become the norm for the way that we deliver high performing buildings, because it's not just a question of, well, well, we'll fudge it, we'll make it through and then we'll offset to get us out of jail. It drives a systematic improvement. And that was one of the reasons that attracted us to it. The fact that you can't just get there by the way that you've always done things. You have to take a very different approach to the way that you design, you procure, you detail and you install a building to a much higher standards of quality. So it drives you down a much more manufacturing approach, uh, which ultimately is, is beneficial to everybody. But, but Tim, with Passive House, um, there may be the perception and there may be the, a barrier to it that it's seen as too expensive. And how do we deal with people that think, well, I like Passive House, but I just can't afford it. I can't justify it. Yeah, I, I, and that's something that comes up time and time again. And I think what we need to look at, well, first of all, there's the kind of CapEx issue versus OpEx that Julius touched upon as well. And particularly when you look at um, developments where you're going to retain the asset for its whole life cycle. Passive House really plays into its own because when we look at the running costs of a Passive House building, as I say, they are significantly lower. So, for example, our two bed, four person semi-detached house, as an example, costs £475 a year to run, of which £200 is, is heating, just over £200. And I live in a 12 year old house, fairly new build, and I can tell you my heating bills are considerably more than £200 a year. So there are differences. Uh, you know, there are differences in terms of you have mechanical and heat recovery ventilation as opposed to conventional extracts. We have better performing windows and there is a certification cost, but they're relatively insignificant when you compare to the overall value of the building and the, the value generation that is created, created afterwards. And I think what we're going to do is as the new future home standard rolls out, which has got in many ways similar fabric performance requirements to Passive House, we're going to see that gap close over time. Um, the flip side, the final flip side, is if we speak to customers uh, that we're engaged with, particularly like Exeter City Living, they will say that they're they're actually able to realise a sales value premium through having the, the, the cachet of a, of a Passive House brand attached to it because they become a more desirable product. <clears throat> I know that we're going to have a uh, Passive House sort of uh, collider uh, show 
a demonstration uh, project at BRE, aren't we? And that's going to be available to view later on this year, isn't it? Yeah, we actually started uh, on site this week, and uh, we're aiming to uh, we're aiming to to kind of have that ready for for viewing in the early part of the new year. And and really, in terms of skills and capacity, what what we're trying to achieve through Collider is not take something that could be complicated and make it complicated, but take something that could be complicated and make it simple. So everything that we're trying to do in the way that we design and assemble the buildings is effectively to de-skill the process while still delivering a high quality product. Yeah. And I think it's really important. Yeah, because capacity is a big issue in construction. I mean, we do feel face the skills crisis. We, we need to address the capacity issue. Um, modern methods of construction do things in a way that requires less on-site resource, but, but be more productive as well. And that's the trick, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, ex exactly. So, I mean, from a technological point of view, it's no more difficult for a builder to plumb in a air source heat pump than it is to do a conventional gas boiler. What we want to do is to be able to create buildings that use less resource on site and, and, and make those through design for manufacturing assembly easier to put together as well. So there is an element of upskilling that's required, but from our experience, it's mainly around the design I don't think it's easy if you don't have the experience of Passive House to suddenly jump in from a design perspective and understand because it is very much a physics driven approach. And we've certainly gone on a pretty vertical learning curve. And for, you know, to, to support us, we've partnered with Archetype, who are one of the leading UK Passive House consultants. We've got a five year partnership deal with those to, uh, to, to deliver and to upskill ourselves. But a large part of what we're working on is how we can then how we can then provide the training and the support and the guidance to our designers and our supply chain. Yeah, I mean, anyone on the call, if you want to go and visit uh, our Passive House concept down at BRE in Watford, then please get in touch with one of our team or Tim Direct, and I'm sure we can arrange that for you later on this year. Just as we sort of head towards the end of this, actually, um, Jonathan, going back to you, um, what what would you like as the key takeaways for, for us all listening and uh, hearing your thoughts from today? That we can go back and talk to our colleagues about and, and understand. I think unlike a, a, a lot of the kind of climate debate, the kind of hot air about climate, this is so doable. This is just, you know, an awful lot of people in our in our sector are very practical. They're hands-on people. They look at a problem. They work out how to deal with that problem. They think about it from a sometimes from an engineering perspective or from a, you know, a management perspective, whatever it is. So the doability of this, for me, is what makes it so compelling. You, you can see what the outcomes will be for people in terms of better buildings in which to live and work. You can see what the upside is in terms of um, economic performance, and you can see, obviously, what the upside is in terms of reduced emissions of greenhouse gases. So when I look at that win-win story for people, quality of the built environment, uh, the buildings themselves, the economic side of it, which is becoming more and more compelling, and then the climate side, it's now, for me, just the, one of the most exciting agendas, one of the most exciting sectors in which to make this stuff really work. And I don't want people to turn away from that. We've had years and years and years of debate about this stuff. Now we essentially need to just get on and deliver what we have learned so that it can affect the lives of many, many more people beneficially. I suppose also it sounds as we gear towards a, a post-Brexit 
trying to find our place in the world, UK, um, this is one area where collectively we can actually be world leaders, can't we? <laughs> well, Andy, you're beginning to sound a bit like Boris Johnson. <laughs> always a mistake at the end of a call like this. I mean, we are so far from being a world leader at the moment in this space. I mean, you actually look at, so Tim referred to a um, heat pump, ground source or air source heat pump. I mean, our level of delivery on heat pumps in this country is shameful. We actually install fewer heat pumps per head of population than Estonia. So, look, I, I always get a little bit nervous about, about invitations to see ourselves as world leaders because we are not world leaders right now. And we have more poor quality housing and more people living in fuel poverty, three, more than three million people in fuel poverty, which is going to get a whole lot worse during this summer of uh, this winter of converging crises. Um, I just I just want us to be good at it. I don't I'm not too worried about being world leader. I just want us to get good by practical application. Mm. And I suppose um, the key thing being collaboration, uh, we can't do it on our own. Um, Walmart Dixon, we need to work with customers, supply chain, our, our tier one contractor peers. And the same goes with 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 our, our local authority partners and others on the call today, you know, reach out, share information, work together, um, because we are very much aligned on the same course. And it's, it, the trajectory is one that we share together. Absolutely. I think we'd all agree with that. And and I think, to be fair, Julie has been really good at reaching out to what might be seen as our competitors and saying this is a hell of a challenge for all of us. So where we can collaborate and where we can learn from each other, let's do that, particularly in terms of, Julie mentioned the supply chain sustainability school. This stuff, you, you can't build a competitive proposition by just claiming to be so much better than anybody else at doing this. We have got to do this together. Mm -hmm. Look, that, that's been great. I really appreciate that. And I know we're, we're at the end now and it's been a fantastic hour. It's just flown by like they always do. And I really appreciate everyone tuning in and listening. And hopefully you've got something useful out of it. And, and I've loved just having the conversation with Jonathan and Julia and Tim and everyone. So thanks very much, everyone, for today. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, you know, look forward to seeing you on another occasion sometime in the future. But in, in the meantime, look, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, have a good rest of the day.